let's start in verse uh, 14. It says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, that by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm going to pray and then we'll continue. Again, Lord, we, as we turn to your word, we're just glad that we can look at it, uh, that we can trust what you have to say to us through your book, Lord, that you've given to us. And so, Lord, we just, uh, as we look at some of these things, I just ask that you would help me to be clear um, in the things that I say this morning, um, that we would be encouraged, even as this verse says that we are to comfort one another with these words, Lord. So help us to do that this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we've been going through, and I've been going through the book of Matthew, and we get to the 24th chapter of Matthew, we get this question from the disciples. We've just had this big conversation between Jesus and some Sadducees and Pharisees and all these leaders in Israel. And then we've had this multitude and the disciples. And so Jesus was this back and forth between these people that he's trying to correct and then he's trying to instruct the multitude and the disciples and teach them through the discussion that he's having with these other people. And it's been a long back and forth. And now they part ways and the disciples and Jesus are in a separate place now. And verse 3 of chapter 24 says, And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so, as we've, the last couple of weeks, I've started this sort of interjecting this little series of the end of the world. And it seems we need to establish some things to understand what the end of the world looks like. And I pointed out a couple weeks ago, as we look around the world, the events around the world, there's a lot of people visiting with people and people that aren't Christians, aren't saved at all, don't know what the Bible has to say, are thinking that we're facing the end of the world. They look at the events of the wars and the potential of the nuclear war that's being warned and threatened and worried about on a day-to-day basis, and you know, you got Russia and Ukraine and this nuclear disaster that's just waiting to happen there, and then you get China and Taiwan, and then you get Israel and Iran and Syria, and all these different things going on, and then we start to look at their Bible and we can say, well look, some of that's lining up with things like in Ezekiel 38, and we can look at some of what Jesus says in chapter 24 here, and things are starting to look like it's fulfilling these things. And so lost people are thinking, this, this could be the end. And Christians are looking and saying, this could be the end. <laughs> of course, they've said that many times before. So we can't be absolutely certain, but certainly all the, 
the details look like they're falling into place. And so we, we are inclined to think that way. And we're supposed to think that way. The disciples thought that way. When Paul wrote this passage I just read in 1 Thessalonians, he's telling this church to think that way, that the end is any time. Christ might come back at any moment. And we should always think that way. And we've looked at some of the verses that tell us what we should act like, what we should think like, if that was the case. If we actually believe that Christ is going to come back again, how should we live? You can think about that. It's like, if at any moment you're going to be facing God in the flesh, what would you not want to be doing at that moment? If that was in an instant, should you not live a life of as much holiness as you could possibly live? <laughs> so that you're not caught in the middle of whatever it is, right? And wouldn't you want to tell your family and your friends, everybody that you know about Jesus, that they could be saved and not spend eternity in hell, right? These are the things that we should think about. And this is what, if the end of the world is near, this should be our focus, is... What do I need to do to prepare for that? And what do I, what sh how should I be living if that's the case? And so we've spent a little bit of time looking at some of these things. And now the Bible teaches a number of different things, and we, can, we start to look at some of the prophecies and some of the explanations of what that end of the world is going to look like, what the events are going to look like coming up to that. And so last week I spent some time, and we're looking at, you go back to Daniel, and there's a prophecy of this 70 weeks, and the end is determined, and it's describing the end, and the end of sin, and the end of all these things that we're used to experiencing. 70 weeks, and we understood from Scripture that that 70 weeks is a week, is a week of years, not a week of days, and so we get this number of years, 483, I finally remembered the number, and got us till where Jesus came. But there's one more week left to be fulfilled in that, and we can see in the details of that final week that it can't possibly have been fulfilled yet because at the end of that week, it's very explicit immediately at the end of that week. It says that the sun is going to be darkened and the moon and, and Christ will be coming back in glory. And Christ certainly has not returned in glory because we would know it. Um, every eye is going to see when that day happens. And so we have some events that, we take, that take place and we have to study. And it takes work to study these things out, to try to understand the order of these things and how it all fits together. And it's not easy. Um, it takes work and effort to study through these things. And I mentioned before that I know that some of you don't agree with my understanding of the outline of, of the end times and as the Bible describes it, and I'm okay with that, um, but I have to teach it the way that I see it, the way that I can understand it, the way I've studied in Scripture. And so if, if that offends you, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. 
but I, I still must teach it the way that I'm understanding it. And so like last week, I described that final seven years. We call it the, the tribulation or the great tribulation. And we went through a bunch of scriptures that shows us that that final seven years is a period of judgment, in particular against Israel for not believing, not trusting in Christ, and then also on the, the lost world who also has rejected Christ because that offer of salvation has been offered to the whole world. And so that judgment is a judgment against those who have rejected Christ. And I have to make the distinction, and my entire doctrine that I'm going to teach is based on the understanding that there's a difference between Israel and the church. And if there isn't, then I'm wrong. But if I'm wrong, then a bunch of the, the things that I'm describing and teaching, I have to, I, I can't make them fit any other way than the way I'm teaching. I don't, I don't see how these things can fit if what I'm saying is wrong. But that's, anyway, that's kind of where we're, we're getting to. And so I went through, there's a little bit of difference between, there's a, not a little bit, there's a, a drastic difference between Israel and the church. Um, I went into, I'm reviewing because a lot of you don't, weren't here for that. And if I just continue on, it won't make a lot of sense. But if we get into Romans 11, and here's kind of the basis, and it, the whole chapter, even chapter 10, has a couple of points that deal with this issue of the differences between Israel and the church. And it starts in chapter 10, but as we get into chapter 11, it's, he starts and says, I, I say then, based on what he's already said in chapter 10, hath God cast away his people, meaning Israel, of course. He says, God forbid, for I also, this is Paul that's writing, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. For what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And God's saying, and if we get toward the end of the chapter, verse 20, 25, says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And when we dig into some of the details as we get into these verses, we'll start to see that blindness, like this verse, blindness in part has happened to Israel. But it doesn't mean that nobody who is an Israelite will become a Christian and a part of the church. He says that's clearly going to happen. But he also says, I'm going to save a remnant of those who currently don't believe. 
there will be a remnant saved through history so that in this time of judgment at the end, a remnant of Israel will be saved out of that. And so that's, there's a fulfillment and a separation. So the prophecies of the tribulation are for Israel and God dealing with Israel. But it is, there's a difference between Israel and the church. And so the church, being the bride of Christ, has a different position entirely. And one of, the, one of the purposes of the tribulation, and as we're on that topic, is to, to turn people to God. Um, and that's both Israel and Gentiles, both. And we'll get into um, Revelation chapter 7 is one spot that makes that statement and makes that declaration that that's God's purpose here, or one of God's purposes here. Revelation 7 and verse 14 says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. We're a little bit out of context with that, but you can read the rest to understand where we're at. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white, in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And, but that they've come through this tribulation. God's going to use that period of tribulation, same as he uses trouble in our lives today, to turn us to him. He is going to use that time to turn people to him as well. And there's also uh, Zephaniah, near the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 1 has a few verses that speak. The whole book is basically based on this last days thing where all of these horrific events, this judgment of God, and there's a distinction that needs to be made, and I I haven't got all the verses in in front of me this morning on that topic, but the distinction is between when we're told as the church to expect tribulation, to expect trouble and trials and problems in our lives because we're following Christ, that is absolutely true, but there's a distinction in Scripture between that, which is just people and Satan working against us. It's the result of us trying to serve God in the world that hates that. And so we're going to have troubles in our life because of that. But there's a difference between that and this specific time that he describes is going to be like none other before. There is, you'll have never seen trouble in the world like what you're going to experience during this last seven years. This is a different period, a different type of tribulation. And this is God's judgment. This is God's wrath being outpoured, not just people trying to work against us. And so we get into Zephaniah uh, chapter 1, verse, um, oh, that's, this isn't even the spot that I was going to go to, but we'll read it anyway. 
verse 14 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against fenced cities, against the high towers. I and I, that's God, I, will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. That's a, that's a pretty harsh statement of what to expect at this end of the world. The judgment of God on people at that time. Sorry, I was actually going to go for Zechariah, a couple of pages closer toward the New Testament. Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, and just the last couple of verses there, verses 8 and 9. It says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but in the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as, fi- as silver is refined and will try them as gold is refined, or is tried, sorry. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. And I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. And what we see here is that God's describing bringing people through that time of tribulation, through the fire. And I want to look at a few verses here this morning that talk about the church not being brought through the fire, but out of. And so there's a distinction and difference in the way that God describes what happens to these two different groups. And so that's where I want to focus this morning. And so if, we bet, if we're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and there's there's a few verses here. There's just one in chapter 1 that I'm going to look at, verse 10. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, that's us as a church, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And so, this is a verse that you'd need to be careful with. We could look at this as possibly just talking about eternal judgment. But I believe if you look into the context of the whole book, it's, it's likely talking about both that and this wrath of God. As the whole Old Testament describes this as the outpouring of God's wrath during this tribulation period. And so he's saying that Jesus is delivering us from that wrath. But then we get to chapter 4. No, chapter 5, sorry. I knew I was wrong there. We get to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. There's a couple of things said here. 
verse 9 in particular, and we'll read a couple of more verses with it, but it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And so, the point in verse 9 says, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. And we can come to the conclusion that what, was, what we read earlier when we started off this morning in, in the previous chapter, this descri- description of the dead in Christ shall rise, and then those that are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, is a description of God delivering the church from that period of wrath. Romans chapter 5 continues with that thought. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure. Sorry. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Those previous verses tell us that we've been, he's delivering us. His sacrifice is to deliver us from wrath. I might have left First Thessalonians a little too quick there, though. Should have told you to hold your spot. But again, in, in chapter 5, a couple of verses earlier, it says, for, in, yeah, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, says, for, your, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh on them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. They shall not escape. The next verse says, but ye, but ye, brethren. When we, looked at the, when we look at the second coming, the description of Jesus' actually, actual second coming is a coming to earth in vengeance, pouring out his wrath on people, 
who have rejected him, and he comes to destroy. That's them, <laughs> but ye, and that's where we get into that, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord. We're not appointed to wrath. We're not appointed to face that. We're going to be brought out of it prior to these things. And so there's a couple of things that we can point to that really make the difference of where things place and the order of these events and when they take place. And we get into the book of Revelation and there's some things happening there in those opening chapters. We have a whole, the first three chapters are entirely written to churches. The word church is mentioned, I can't remember what the number is, many, many times, 30 sometimes or something like that, in those first three, three chapters. And God's talking to the churches through, through John, the Apostle John. And we get to chapter 4. There's this picture of what I believe 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is describing. It says, After this I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And that voice like a trumpet talking that says, come up hither. From this moment, everything that John sees is from the perspective of heaven, not from the perspective of earth. Everything prior to this was on earth, and he's talking to churches and people in the church, people who have believed in Jesus up until that point. But from this point on, John is in heaven looking at events taking place up there. And in the following couple of chapters, we see some things going on prior, and if you know the book of Revelation at all, this is a, a book that, it's like, this is where everybody turns to, like, this is the apocalypse, this is the end of the world, this is the description of all those events, and sort of where we get the detailed description of these things, and we can piece this together with many of the Old Testament passages, we can piece this together with what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25. And we see the, the overlap there, the, the things line up that this is that description. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 are things that took place prior to that. And so if we look at what is taking place there, uh, chapter 5, there's a couple of verses here. Sorry, wrong. Yep, still chapter 5. My finger's in the wrong spot. <laughs> chapter 5, verses 8. To 10. It says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people. And nation, and has made us to, made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And this is a description 
this is what God describes the church. We look through the, the New Testament and Paul's writings, and we're this is this is a description of the church, the people of the church, and they're in heaven already with God, observing these things. And uh, we've been doing our Thursday Bible studies, going through the Book of Revelation, and we went into detail into some of these things, comparing Scripture with Scripture to establish that these 24 elders and these, all of these details indeed do point that this is the church. The church is no longer on the earth, but is in heaven, observing the, these events taking place as John is there doing that as well. And when we get to Revelation 19, and I think this is a very important point in all of this, and this will be the point where I stop more or less this morning, we get to Revelation 19. And there's a, a, there's a bunch of stuff happening. We're getting right to the end of that seven-year period, that period of judgment. And we're observing some events that are taking place in heaven once again. So chapter 19, starting in verse 6, says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints." And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship, and, and this is an angel, not God himself, and so he prevents him from worshiping. But we see a wedding taking place in heaven. This is the bride of Christ is prepared and going to this wedding supper. And when is this, taking, is this taking place? In heaven, prior and just prior. As we can look at, I didn't write down the specific verses. Oh yeah, I did. Actually, the, the very following verses tell us that those same people that are there for the wedding are coming back with Christ on his second coming. So what we're describing in 1 Thessalonians 4 of people being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's a, we're, we're going up to heaven to be there with him prior to this seven-year period. And then we'll be there for this wedding and then return with him. And it's the, the verses immediately that follow what I just read. Um, we can start in verse 11. It says, and I saw heaven opened and Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. If I just pause for one second. We didn't read the verse back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, there's the 24 elders and all these people gathered around God's throne 
and they've been given crowns. And as we go through the New Testament, we see that God rewards his faithful servants in the church with crowns. And these crowns that these people have around the throne, they cast at Jesus' feet. And now we see at the end of the tribulation, he has many crowns. Because any one of us that receives a crown, we throw it at Jesus' feet and he gets to wear all of those. Because they all belong to him, because it's him who has done everything for our salvation, right? It's not of us. And so, verse 13 says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and, of his, and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And, but we see that those, the church is with him. We're coming back with him. And this isn't the only place that says that. Jude 14, just prior to Revelation, the book of Jude. Just to show that I'm not misinterpreting that passage, because it doesn't specifically say that's the church. We'll go here, and it says in Jude, Jude 14, so there is only one chapter. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly <laughs> sinners have spoken against him. But it's very clear here that the church, the saints, ten thousands, like it's lots, are coming with him. And First Thessalonians chapter 3. Should have held your finger in Thessalonians apparently. But First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Not for all of the saints, but with them. We're, we're already with him when he comes back. And so there's my main point in that my understanding from my study of the Bible and all these differences is that that seven-year period, that end of days, that final judgment is against Israel, against the lost world. But the church will be, we call it the rapture, it's not a specifically a biblical word, but it's a word we use to describe this event of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air so that we're brought out of that wrath, that day of wrath, because we're not appointed to wrath. And then we're there for this marriage ceremony. We could have looked at some verses that describe the church as the bride of Christ, but it's there. And then when he comes back, that actual second coming, 
He's coming to destroy, to finish, and to rule. He's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, there's a final cleansing, final judgment, and everything is made new again. So there's sort of a summary run through all that. So let's pray. Again, Lord, as we're looking at these things and going through a lot of scripture to try to establish the truth and the make the points clear that we're not making this stuff up. Um, it is scriptural and it's the, to the best that I'm able to do and see it is the most scriptural view of what the end is going to look like. And Lord, I'm, I'm prone to error. I could be wrong in some of these things, but Lord, again, we just commit that to you. And Lord, we look at verses like in, in Titus that tell us that we're to look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're looking forward to that, Lord, in whatever form that takes. But, Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you in that. So, Lord, again, we commit this to you. And, Lord, I ask that if anybody that's here this morning doesn't know which side of that they're on, whether on the judgment side or on the redeemed side, Lord, that if they don't know you as their personal Savior, that... Uh, they wouldn't leave here this morning without knowing that. And so, Lord, we just, uh, again, we invite people to come and talk to me after the service if, if they want to know more, Lord. And so, Lord, again, we commit this morning to you in Christ's name. Amen. So if,